here in just a few minutes. But before we do that, we just want to spend time praying and seeking the Lord on behalf of all the people that were affected by the things that went down at Michigan State this week. It's just a horrible, horrible tragedy. It reminds me that there's still places and parts in this world, as Karen was talking, just whether it's in East Lansing or Thailand or Bangladesh or down the street or in our neighborhood, there's still darkness that's trying to kill and destroy the people of God and the people that God loves and made to know him. So we want to take a minute just to uh, kind of pray for, I mean, there's people in our community, in our neighborhoods right here that have been affected by this in a really major way. And I think for me, I can be overwhelmed and that sort of leads me to, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to help. But the thing that I think God has been trying to teach me is that when I don't know what to do, I, I have a really simple thing that I can do, and that's to pray. And sometimes I don't know what to pray, and I don't know how to pray. And sometimes I think my prayers are pretty small, and they don't really mean much in the grand scheme of things. But I think God has been saying to me and says to us, I hear all of your prayers. They matter they're doing something. There's something about it. Um, and so I just wanted to take a minute. We're just going to have, it's going to be quiet. We're going to pray by ourselves. You can pray silently or out loud. But just for all the people that have been touched, all the people who have lost family members, and friends, brothers and sisters, children, um, just that God would comfort them, that God would lead them, and that they would know his goodness and his nearness. So we'll just spend a few minutes praying silently on our own, and then I'll kind of close us before we move on with the rest of our service. So let's pray. God, we thank you that as uh, you said to your churches in Revelation that you know. You know what's going on right now. You know what your people need. You know how their hearts feel. You know uh, what they're going through. And so we pray, Lord, that you would um, make everyone impacted by the things of this week aware of your presence. And in the way that only you can, God, that you'd bring supernatural comfort and peace and hope, or it feels like there is none. God, we pray against the enemy who wants to destroy and kill and rob and ruin. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. As much as possible, we pray it, that by your Holy Spirit and in your good news that the kingdom would come as much as possible. God, continue to lead us 
to be your hands and feet when that's what you ask of us. And I pray that you would lead us by your spirit to pray um, for those that we know and for those that we don't. God, you're good and you love us. We don't always understand. It doesn't always make sense. But we humble ourselves before you and ask for your help by your Holy Spirit. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's be continuing to pray for those who have been affected. I'm going to introduce uh, to you guys our uh, teacher for this morning. Some of you have known him for many, many years. But please welcome Wayne Stapleton. Good morning, Grace. How are you? Still morning. Um, I am uh, blessed to be here this morning. And we're going to be going through Revelation 4 and Five, and I think this view of God and who he is in his throne room is so incredibly critical for us. It's always critical for us, but it's so critical in these times. Um, I have asked Audrey Turner to come up and be our reader for Revelation 4. So as she comes up, could you welcome her and then please stand? Thanks, Uncle Wayne. The throne in heaven. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the twenty. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion, the, seven, uh, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24, uh, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Audrey. You may be seated. And we're on uh, page 1030 in your pew Bible under your seat and page 18 in your Revelation journal um, as we go through this. Uh, Would you just pray with me, please, as we open up? Gracious Father, we just thank you and praise you for your love for us, for your revelation through your word for the revelation of exactly who you, th- who you are through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we just pray this morning, Heavenly Father, that um, you'll 
engage us, encourage us, strengthen us, guide us. Um, we need you. Uh, reveal to us the ways we need you and help us learn how to worship you even more. Thank you and praise you for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Last year, I had the opportunity to take a helicopter ride from Las Vegas into the Grand Canyon. It was very, very, yeah, woo, right. The whole ride was stunning. I was gliding over these shimmering buildings and then down into this vast rocky canyon. And I was blown away by the vantage point from a helicopter. I wanted to capture the moment. And since, you know, I have a camera, I took pictures, several. And what my little phone registered was a, a bunch of buildings and pictures of rocks and dirt from flying above, but nothing like what I was seeing and feeling in the moment. Have you ever experienced something like this? You have this amazing experience that you're going through. You want to capture it so you, and record it for posterity's sake. And you pull out your camera because we all have them. And then you take the pictures and you go back and look. And you're kind of like, uh, what was that? Some of the pictures were nice memories. But honestly, I went through the roll of my phone and deleted a bunch, wondering why I needed 17 pictures of this building from different angles. And I didn't know what they were or pictures of really cool rocks and dirt. In the moment, I was thinking, I can't believe I'm here. Let me capture this. And yet the pic cannot do it justice. And I, I, I got to feel that's similar to what we're experiencing as we go through this rest of Revelation. But this is the word of God, no question. And yet John the Revelator is being exposed to a vision that can't possibly truly be captured in words. And though he's making the attempt. In chapters 4 and 5, John is being shown a vision of the holiest place in all creation, the rarefied area where God the Father sits on his throne. And there's some really wild imagery here, but let's remember, it's a vision. God is giving him impressions. It's, some, uh, it's not that it's not true. There are very true truths here, but they're being given by God in the way John and we can receive them. And the purpose is to communicate deep, absolute truths through symbolism. We're in a place where the revelation transitions from the letters to the heavenly visions. And the position of this vision is really the center of the book of Revelation. It's coming after the letters. And when we read the, went through the letters, uh, we were being exhorted to listen to Jesus, to respond faithfully to what he commanded the churches. He said, I, I see you. I, I, I know what you're going through. I know what's going on. Endure. Be patient. And this vision precedes what we're going to see in the rest of the book, which is judgment on earth, showing us the God who's worthy of all worship, that he's also powerful and will be able to preserve and vindicate his church. And we're reminded that there's a world beyond this one. When Jesus said in his earthly ministry, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, the title of this sermon is Watch the Throne. And I mean zero association with the rap album, if you know, you know. If you don't, let's keep moving. But you'll see why Watch the Throne might be a decent title later. This vision shows us that God is on the throne and he will never be moved. And we need to hear this because too many times for each of us, the one on our throne isn't necessarily God. It's something or someone else. We end up making God in our own image, 
dressing Jesus up in our own clothes. Reminds me of the time when a a couple of friends left church and one of them said, I didn't really like the worship today. And the other one said, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. I still see the, the buckets from last week when we were, went through the liturgy and, and D- Pastor Doug reminded us to write down things that we need to turn over to God. And then we came down and we put them in the buckets and then he promised he was going to burn them. He teed up this section so well because that ex- exercise, if we went through it with, you know, with earnestness, um, it, it, it cleanses our palate for what we're going to experience when we go through Revelation chapters 4 and 5 today. And so we begin in chapter 4, verse 1, with the transition after this. The letters took place, and so then John says, after this, showing us we're entering into another section following those seven letters. And John is called up by Jesus, the voice who spoke to him earlier, and a door opens to a vision of the throne room in heaven, the center of all reality where God the Creator is seated. And notice not just the characters, but notice the description of their positioning. This is a busy room. Everything here, though, is described in relation to the throne. And the prepositions in it show us. We read in verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, jasper and carnelian are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Um, In one place in the Old Testament, there were two of the 12 special stones that were worn on the special garment the ceremonial garment of the priest. Later on, at the end of the book, we see that they're part of the 12 stones that make up the foundation of the heavenly city that comes down. In verse 4, we read, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, reminiscent of, of Sinai when Moses went up on the mountain. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, representing God the Holy Spirit. There's a trinity here in verses 4 and 5. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first one like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They led the praise of God in this room. But if you notice, everything in the room is described with relationship to the throne because the throne is the center. It's not just the center even of the room. It's the center of reality. It's the center of the universe. When something's at the center, it impacts and touches everything else, like the spokes of a wheel, each one connected to the hub and radiating outward. The center is where the activity flows from. The center of this book The center of the revelation is the throne room, and the activity in the book of Revelation flows from this throne room and the one who sits on it. So who are these characters? We don't really know, but we can speculate. And there are different commentators who have different opinions about who these are. I think 
that they're likely angelic beings. And I believe this because later on in chapter 5, verse 10, they refer to the people Jesus saved as them. They're not counting themselves in that number. It might be a good time to stop here and say that we would need to remember that like many of the things on earth that are, to, that, that are reflected in heaven are, are a shadow of the deeper realities in heaven. Moses, for instance, when he was, uh, got the designs to build the tabernacle, he was uh, shown uh, a heavenly realities of it. And it, it was a type and shadow of what actually is going on in heaven. King David, when he organized the priests, he organized them into 24 divisions listed in 1 Chronicles 24. So here, 24 is a significant number because on earth, the people of God were represented by 24 types of heavenly elders, the 12 tribes, leaders of the tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles that Jesus selected. On earth, it's almost as if God put 24 elders in place to reflect the 24 elders that are sitting around his royal court. The four living creatures are reminiscent of heavenly creatures that are mentioned in the prophetic book of Ezekiel. They're similar and yet they're different. Again, reminding us that what we're seeing is a vision, what God wants to reveal to John and to us. It's less like a photograph and more like an artistic impression or even a dream. These creatures could represent creation. Biblically, the number four tends to represent the earth or creation. There's four directions. There's four seasons. And numbers really matter in this book. And there's an, a, almost an innumerable amount of sevens in different places. And that's, there's a reason for that. Just as with the number four, the number 12, the number 24. One commentator writes, As symbols show the meaning of things rather than their earthly appearance, these creatures say something about the glory of God. God is the great and strong ruler of all. His heavenly assistants reflect his attributes. But even as we might debate and dig into who are these creatures, what's more important is not who they are. What's important is what they are doing. And what are they doing? We read in verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. They worship. They reveal God is worthy. And in his, his worthiness is in his identity as the creator of everything. Who could possibly deserve more honor or glory or worship or praise than the one who created everything, the one who made us? Reality is his idea. Amen. And in this room, the worship continues and it rises. The worship could not be more powerful than what's in this room. And yet, though, there are times, even here on earth among us, when the presence of God gets stronger. There are times when the Holy Spirit seems to move a little more powerful and the air seems to get heavier and thicker and worship is inspired even more and confession is taking place and repentance takes place and humility takes place and a growing desire to please God takes place. Sometimes when we worship, it almost feels that heaven meets earth. And for the past couple weeks now, people are saying this is what's happening at Asbury College. 
At student, the student chapel on February 8th started, and since then, the worship has not stopped. There's been confession and repentance. It's a site of what we would call a revival. And, and, it's, and it's moved. And what's interesting, what's interesting about it also, though, is Asbury's a Methodist university. People are testifying that it happened at Samford, which is a Baptist university in Alabama, and Lee University in Tennessee is a Pentecostal university. So I'm trying to figure out um, what denomination God is. Maybe we put him too much in a box, and maybe God is bigger than all that kind of stuff. We have flavors, but God has all the flavors, right? But this isn't even the first time that God has moved in this way. On February 3rd, 1970, people said that the morning chapel began, and from that point, continuous worship and praise lasted 185 hours nonstop. Reports are that it intermittently continued for weeks. Ultimately, it spread across the United States into other countries. You know, so often people pray for revival. They pray that revival will come, and God answers. God has a tendency to answer. Now, one of my favorite passages is Isaiah 55. God says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. So revival might come. Revival might not come in the package we wanted it to come in. It might not come exactly the way we would have designed it, but that's why God is God, and that kind of stuff is above our pay grade. Our job is to enjoy it and lean in. Tom McCall is a professor at Asbury College, and he wrote in a Christianity Today article about what's happening at Asbury. Many people say that in the chapel, they hardly even realize how much time has elapsed. It's almost as though time and eternity blur together as heaven and earth meet. Anyone who has witnessed it can agree that something unusual and unscripted is happening. I'm sure many of you may have even felt that here at times when you're worshiping and praising God. Today we're going through the heaven part of it, but may we more experience the earthly part of it. And may we also get excited about the time when we will be there as well. So here we are in the throne room. We're in the throne room. The ones who seated on the throne is receiving all this worship and honor and glory. This is the rarefied air of where God exists and where God lives and uh, where he, he rules all of creation from. And yet there's a problem. There's a dilemma. There's an issue. Even here, a scroll is in the hand of the one seated on the throne. What is this scroll? We read it was written within and on the back. And one explanation, not the, but one explanation, is that in Jewish culture, it wasn't uncommon for this to be like a title to deed to property. The deed would originally be written on one side with one seal, but when, if the owner goes in default on the debt, the redemption price would be on the back kind of like a Monopoly card. I, I, I'm showing Marvin Gardens here because it's my favorite property. I don't know why. And I always see the back of this card because when my kids were little, Tanya and me and the boys would play Monopoly and she'd make us all cry because she'd beat us all. And so I always saw the back of my mortgage property when I'm playing against Tanya. In this case, the scroll that's in the hand of the one on the throne is sealed in seven seals, which cannot be broken until the debt is paid in full. Remind you of anybody, I don't know. Could the scroll be the title deed to the earth? Some people might think that. Satan promised the kingdoms of earth to Jesus if Jesus would bow down and worship him, implying that they were his to give. So what's in the scroll? We will see later in this book. We, Richard Bauckham 
One theologian writes that the scroll is to reveal the way in which the Lamb's victory is to become effective in establishing God's rule over the world. In other words, the apocalypse is about the coming rule of God. The kingdom of God, as we read in Scripture and experience in life, is kind of an already and a not yet. Jesus said the kingdom is here, the effective rule and reign of God. And it came in and through his ministry and to his people. But the kingdom has not yet swept the earth. And we know that. Because even now, sadly, there's still murder. There's still hatred. There's still oppression. Still things like what happened at Michigan State. There's still struggle and suffering and pain. We don't have to be reminded that we live in a fallen place. But the kingdom does show up here, like at Asbury and other places, like in our relationships, like in this room. It's already and not yet. The opening of the scroll, when completed, will bring the fullness of the kingdom to earth. Sin will be dealt with. Justice will be established. Death will be fully and finally defeated. And the writing on both sides could imply that the scroll is completely filled because God has already put all the details down on the scroll. But somebody needs to be worthy of opening the scroll if any of this is going to happen. And up to this point in our reading of Revelation, no one has been found worthy. It's inaccessible. And John has this vision And so he's seeing this stuff, and he recognizes the weight and the value and the significance of the scroll. And so we read that he starts weeping because he wants the scroll to be open. He wants the the apocalypse, the, the, the judgment of God to take place. He recognizes the fact that the destiny of the church and the entire universe itself hangs in the balance over the question of can somebody be found to open this scroll? It will take a certain kind of person to execute God's judgment on sin and preserve God's people. Someone who God would deem as worthy. And it appears no one is found almost. John's told in verse 5 of chapter 5, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is awesome. Out of all of the billions of people that have inhabited the planet, one has been found worthy by God, a lion. Somebody powerful. We expect to see someone with physical power, with might, with strength, like a spiritual version of the Incredible Hulk or some other Avenger. Someone who's going to exert his will as the only one in the entire universe to open the scroll. Someone dominant, someone powerful, someone coercive, someone mighty. That's what we would expect to see in our flesh. What does John see? In this vision John gave, God gave John, he sees a, a lamb that looks like it was slaughtered. We're expecting to see somebody powerful, and John sees somebody that looks like roadkill. What's this about? This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. John sees the surprising victor. Notice he did not see the incredible Hulk. He did not see Chuck Norris. He did not see Superman. He didn't see a lion either. He saw a lamb standing, looking like it had been slaughtered, which is how you know it's a a vision and not a picture. This is Jesus, and Jesus is both God and man, but John sees a symbol. He sees a lamb with seven horns 
and seven eyes, which if you see an entity with seven horns and seven eyes, I'm not sure lamb is the first thing that comes to mind. But this is what John saw. The horns reflect all power and the eyes represent the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a triune vision. The Holy Spirit's here just like the Father and the Son. Notice the lamb's location, though, in the throne room. He's between the throne and the four living creatures. His proximity to the throne says something about his identity. This is no ordinary servant. This is the focal point of all of God's plan. And he was able to take the scroll to mediate God's plan. All authority has been given to him. The debt has been paid in full because we know Jesus paid it all. So why a lamb? The lamb's been a symbol pointing forward to Jesus throughout scripture. At the Passover, a lamb was a Passover meal for the Exodus. And the lamb's blood protected the homes of anyone who applied it. Lambs were offered throughout the sacrificial system of Israel. When John the Baptist saw Jesus during his earthly ministry, John the Baptist exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This lion, this lamb, conquered by his death. Not powerless, mind you, but a different kind of power. We, we, we hear the stories Karen shared about what happened in Laos or in Bangladesh and in India. And we feel sorry for those people and think of them as powerless. But from the throne room's perspective, it's a different kind of power. The kind of power where you say, my life is in heaven with God. And so I can give it up here on earth. His kingdom is not of this world. One commentator writes, Christ's achievement is unique, but it also sets the pattern for Christians. We're to fight our spiritual battles not with military or political strength, but with endurance, purity, and faithfulness to Christ, even to the point of death. See, it wasn't just about what Jesus fought for, but also it was about how he fought. Jesus just said those things to the churches. In the letters, this is what Jesus is saying to the church today with ears to hear. Stay faithful, stay pure, don't compromise, endure. When I think about what believers who worship the same Jesus we worship are going through in places like Bangladesh or in Laos or in, in India, um, I think they're not losing. They're testifying. And that's the testimony they've been called to. The church is at its most Christ-like when it's serving in love and humility. When John is in the throne room looking at the one who was able to open the scroll, this lion of the tribe of Judah, this ultimate victor who gave his life, I think to be Christian is to be Christ-like, like this. Today, too many Christians act like all he did was turn over tables, like his primary ministry was table turning. But he did a lot more humble serving than table turning. And even then, he turned over tables because poor people were being economically taken advantage of by the money changers. Throughout history, the church has historically been not only at its best, but at its most compelling 
to the watching world when it has loved and sacrificed on behalf of people who could not pay them back, when it has revealed God's love for those in need, when it has acted out of a clarity and an awareness that there's a life beyond this one. There's a famous early church father who once was quoted, Tertullian, as saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God's version of winning looks different from the throne room than it does to us on earth. And one of the reasons why God has given Ezekiel and Isaiah and even Paul and then us in Revelation this vision is so we can get a glimpse of what it looks like from the throne room and maybe that'll affect what we see on earth. One of my friends who's a professor at a seminary says, seeing is a moral act. From the throne, God doesn't see left and right. He sees right and wrong. Verse 8, we read, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This incense that's coming out of the bowls is rising up in the throne room like smoke. I love this part. Please hear this. Despite the fact that this is the rarefied air of perfect holy heaven where you and I cannot be right now, we are represented. Those prayers of the saints include our prayers, include your prayers, your prayers for your loved ones, your intercession for the lost, your lifting up the sick and those in need. You're covering the people that are suffering from what happened at Michigan State. Your prayers for your church. You're crying out to God for your children and your friends. You're weeping prayers for God to intervene in the brokenness of the world. You're covering the, the persecuted church in parts of the world. Be comforted that your prayers rise like incense before God in his throne room. Trust in that. Trust in your prayers. And in this room, the worship continues to rise. In verses 9 and 10, he celebrated, the lamb is celebrated as worthy because he was slain. He was slain and his shed blood bought people, brought people out of sin and into a new family. Reminding us this God is not a national God. He's a cosmic creator and redeemer of everyone who will trust him. The people Christ saved are a global people called together from different tribes, languages, people, and nations to be a kingdom and priest. When something happens to a follower of Jesus in Bangladesh, that's the church. That's us. That's the body of Christ. Something's happening to a part of our body. We're called to be one people, or as Ephesians puts it, one new man called together. There's no cultural or national preference here. Just people from all time and all over the world whose significance comes from the fact that they are in Christ Jesus. And the worship keeps on rising among an innumerable number of angels. John writes, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the worship Keep, worship keeps on rising, and there's a path here, right? In chapter 4, the one on the throne is worshipped. In chapter 5, the lamb is worshipped. At the end of chapter 5, they're both worshipped together. 
We read, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this vision? There's a vision to John. There's a vision for God's people. What do we take from this that's edifying? Well, heaven reality, heavenly realities have earthly implications. What it meant to the churches of the first century was see God for who he is. Make him the center of your life. Worship him. See God as so precious that you can endure suffering in his name. So special to you that you will repent from your self-delusion and your pride and the loss of your first love. Stay faithful and cast out idolatry of all kinds because God is sovereign and every being, spiritual and physical, will answer to him. And friends, that's what it means for us too today in our own time and in our own circumstances. God's the focal point of the entire universe. Worship him. Tim Keller has said, you don't get to decide to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what or who to worship. The Christian band Casting Crowns got their name from Revelation 4.10. One of the members, Mark Hall, is quoted as saying, the scripture is Revelation 4 where it talks about the 24 elders around the throne putting their crowns before him. For me as a believer, if you're not careful, little things will rise up in your life and become important. And it will create distance between you and God. These little kingdoms don't have to be bad things. Sometimes they can be good things. They just take our focus away. We have to let these kingdoms fall and fall before him and make sure we're setting apart Christ as Lord in our lives. I've heard someone say, sometimes you can let good things become God things and you can get twisted, which is why we have to catch ourselves. Many people see Lent, as even Meg talked about, as an opportunity to adjust, to invite God in, to check the throne of our hearts. So what Mark Hall was saying was, in other words, God is on a real ultimate throne, but each of us has been given somehow by God a throne ourselves, and we get to put on that throne whatever we want. We get to choose what to put on that throne. We can bow down to the creator of the universe or we can bow down to our comfort or we can bow down to our schedules or we can bow down to our things or we can bow down to our reputation. We can bow down to a lot of things. We can bow down to our spouse. We can bow down to our family. Who or what is on the throne of your life? Is your throne consistent with the throne at the universe or is it some other deity? See, what you worship is what you say, without that, my life isn't worth living. This is what I base my identity on. And you and I are being challenged, at least this morning, to watch the throne in our lives. Watch the place to which we look for worship, for for comfort, for security, for identity, for hope. And this message hits me personally because, and I hate, I hate to say this, but, you know, I guess I have to say it. I already started talking like this. I've needed to watch my throne. Too often, 
Too often the person on my throne is you. It's people. Too often it's true of me to say I'm not who I think I am. I'm who you think I am. I'm how you think I performed. More than who God says I am. When I would preach regularly, I'd get several nice compliments about my sermon. But let one person have an issue with something I said. And guess what I'm thinking about the rest of the week? My self-esteem has too often been wrapped up in how other people see me than how God sees me. And he deals with me in this in different ways. What about you? Who slipped onto your throne at times? And, and, and let's remember, God isn't sharing the throne with someone else. God isn't putting one of his divine, you know, behind cheeks on one side of the throne and letting you pick whatever else you want to put on that throne. Because oftentimes we might say, oh, yeah, you know, I have God on the throne, but, I, but this is very important, too, because it's the principle of the thing, right? But God slides off when we do that. What might it look like to watch our throne? Ask yourself these questions. Who's on the throne of my heart? In other words, how do I spend my time and why? What motivates me? Sometimes it's not always what we do. Sometimes religion can look good, but we can be operating out of an unhealthy place. And it may not be God on our throne, even though we could be doing a whole lot of church work. But we have to investigate our own hearts. What riles you up the most? What are you most passionate about and why? Who do you identify as your allies and who have you decided are your enemies and why? Kara Powell of the Fuller Youth Institute has identified a big three for youth ministry. Identity, belonging, or purpose. And the question is, where do you find identity? Where do you find your sense of belonging? And where do you get your purpose from? As humans, we can place our identity in a lot of things that are not Jesus. We can find belonging organized around things that are not from God. We can find purpose that doesn't come from our maker. And Christians can be guilty of this. For instance, these days we're so politicized that too many Christians run their understanding of the world through a political grid prior to a biblical grid. So what ends up being foundational is not the word of God, just the lens you choose to interpret the word of God through. And you're not realizing the fact that you're bending the word of God to something that you've decided is more foundational than it. We have to watch the throne of our lives. What drives our identity? So our identities don't go away when we trust in Christ, but if Jesus is the center, then they get redeemed. We have national identities, cultural identities, ethnic identities, other identities that we've been born with. But every single one must be consistent with the will and purposes of God and be subordinate to what he wants to do in and through us. I've been in conversations with people about racial identity. And people tell me because of Galatians 3.28, where it says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus, that there should be no more talk of race because we're all one. But the same people would never suggest that male and female should be done away with. That's right there too. And it's because they shouldn't. 
Ethnic and cultural distinctions remain. They're recognized in heaven as tribes and languages and people and nations, but they're transformed by a new center, a new resident of our throne, the Lord God, and they're surrendered and submitted to him and his purity and his purposes and his will. What forms our sense of belonging? The world we inhabit is cut up into tribes, and unfortunately, so is the church. And the tribes are based on many things, politics, culture, even economics, theology, certainly. They're so rapidly pro their own and, and, and rapidly anti the other. There was an article in June 2021 uh, on a website, Mere Orthodoxy, that attempted to diagnose this fracturing of the evangelical church. And Michael Graham, the author, said it was being broken into six different fragments that he described in the article. The article stated that this fracturing is not because the gospel's not unifying enough. But it's because people have decided that because of differences in ethics, engaging culture, racial attitudes, political perspectives, and what these things mean for ministry, people have gone into different kinds of corners. And the reality is people are actually choosing these things as opposed to the centrality of the one on the throne to find their sense of belonging. We all need a sense of belonging. But God sent Jesus so he would be the center of our belonging. And his own church, in many ways, is at war with itself, politically, ideologically, and theologically. Who provides your purpose? Because Jesus has purchased us by his own blood, he gets to tell us our purpose. And the purpose of his church and everyone who belongs to it is to be and to make disciples. He came to set the captives free. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to give life to those who are dead by his resurrection power. He said the way to come after him is to deny yourself. It means put him on the throne. To take up your cross daily and follow him. You can't follow God and go in a different direction than Jesus. I hope you're challenged this morning because I am. It's so exciting to think about uh, the revival at Asbury. And oftentimes we might pray for revival, but uh, I think we need to remember that the pathway to revival is our own personal repentance. I think again about the stuff, again, that we uh, put in the baskets, in the, in the buckets last week. I hope you didn't take that back up. I hope perhaps we can spend time during Lent going through the book and spending time in prayer and inviting God for those 40 days to show us anything he might want to show us about who's on our throne and why he isn't and how to get him back there. If you ask God the tough questions about your throne, he will speak to you from his. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for your word, for your truth, for this message, I pray, Lord God, that we take what um, John was revealed, what was revealed to John in his vision, and learn how to apply it to our lives. Lord God, teach us how to worship. Help us not, not to approach you from a position of pride, thinking we know it all. Help us to approach you humbly. Help us to be willing to repent. Help us to be willing to interrogate our hearts. And not to just make assumptions about how good we are and maybe how somebody else might need this. 
Help us to realize the pathway to revival is through our own personal repentance. Help us to watch our thrones. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me stand and sing this as kind of a response to what we just heard. to put you on the throne of our hearts, the throne of our lives, that you'd have your way. Help us put you in your right place, the place that you deserve. Lead us and guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we have a team of people, whether you want to come down here in the building or join a private Zoom room, who would love to pray for you, any needs physically, mentally, spiritually, uh, we'd love the chance to pray for you. But have a great week.